Welcome to Peer Spectrum, where we bypass the ordinary and familiar to explore the unsettled edges of medicine, where we tackle real problems in depth with those specialized and dedicated to solving them, where we mine the knowledge and experience spectrum of your peers through long-form conversations, not sound bites. Take us with you anytime, anywhere, and get ready to make your downtime count. Get ready for Peer Spectrum with Keith Mankin and Colin Miller. All right, welcome back. Our last episode had us talking with the founders of Experiment.com, a novel and exciting way to crowdfund scientific medical research. If you missed this episode, definitely check it out. Keith and I came away so impressed, we decided to take a deeper look at some of the current research on Experiment. One really jumped out at us, so we invited the lead researcher to come on the show and join us. That researcher is today's guest, Dr. Suzanne Culligan, a professor of ophthalmology at the Washington University School of Medicine and the St. Louis Children's Hospital. We really dug deep on this episode and covered a lot of ground. Alternatives to traditional grant funding, resident education, and best of all, Suzanne's current research that, get ready, actually challenges the long-held assumption that only surgeons have the expertise to reliably assess surgical skill. Her experiment seeks to prove that non-clinicians viewing surgical videos can assess surgical skill just as accurately as highly skilled attendings. Not a chance, you say. Well, see how you feel at the end of this episode. You might just change your mind. With that said, let's get started. You know, yeah, um, I'm I'm so torn. We might have to have you on a second time if you're available <laughs> because I want to talk about all this funding stuff and I want to talk about the experiment.com. Yeah. But on the other hand, there's so much to unravel and unpack in, in your work that this is um, this is really exciting. I feel like a kid in a candy store here. So. I, I do too, actually, because <laughs> I've been very excited about these topics for a very long time. And there's a little sort of small world that understands exactly what I'm getting at and are excited about it. And then there's a <laughs> lot of resistance. Yes. Yeah, a I bet there is. Resistance. Last episode, we had the founders of experiment.com. And Keith and I had so much fun during that episode, we started digging through to look at some of the current research that's being posted on there and front, funded through this new, relatively new crowdsourcing method. Just take us through your path, Susan. Uh, you know, we're going to get to experiment, but give us an idea of your clinical and research interests and particularly some of your struggles early on with grant funding and how you got to where we are today. Sure. So um, my background is in uh, developmental neurobiology, and I had a basic science research lab for about 10 years. Um, and that was really my passion. I saw patients part-time and worked in the laboratory part-time um, and had to spend a lot of my time and effort writing grants to try to keep the research afloat. And that was a very frustrating process um, where a lot of the funding agencies weren't looking for the kind of research I was doing. Uh, the review process was very onerous and tedious. And a lot of what the reviewers were asking for in the science was really not what I wanted to be doing. Um, there was a pivotal moment that I didn't recognize at the time, but that became really uh, important for my, my getting to where I am today and the research that I'm pursuing now, where I was in Boston uh, to visit Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary. They were doing a, um, an education retreat and talking about residency training, and I'm the residency training director at Washington University, and they invited me to speak. But my PhD supervisor was at Harvard at the time. He had moved from Washington University to Harvard. And I had just gotten a grant review back that had indicated I was a few percentage points shy of getting funded. 
and was very frustrated at the reviews I got. Um, and a, a lot of the same issues are the ones that apply in the in the clinical research I'm doing now, in that the experiment I was proposing was really an observational study. I wanted to understand how normal development happens in the developing visual system and had some experiments designed to be able to label cells with different kinds of uh, fluorescent dyes to be able to follow them during development. And the criticism of the grant was that this is not hypothesis-driven research. This is an observational study and therefore it's not science. The counter to that is we can't really do the science we want to do until we know what the landscape looks like. And my PhD mentor had made his career out of doing observational research. He was one of the first people, his, his name is Jeff Lickman, he's one of the first people to do uh, what's called in vivo imaging, where you actually image in the live animal, uh, close it up, let it run around, come back, image again. And um, you know this was something that he struggled with when I was a graduate student in his lab. So I went to his office since he was now at Harvard, to ask his advice about how to fix this grant. And he met me with, that's why I'm at Harvard. You're not going to be able to get funding at NIH for this kind of research. They don't understand what's important. They're um, beholden to Congress. It's all about outcomes now. They want return on investment, and they're not funding basic science research. And at Harvard, I can tell them I need a million dollars to figure out how the brain works, and they find a donor that's going to give me that money. And I was crushed. Because here yeah. I came to my mentor asking for advice on how to fix my grant, and he told me, I can't. You can't. So he said to me, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm trying to get advice on this grant. And he said, no, no, no. What, what are you doing in Boston? So I told him that I was going to Mass Ioneer for this education retreat, and I got onto my high horse about the ACGME milestones. The ACGME is the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education. They're sort of the credentialing agency for all residency programs, ophthalmology and everything else included. And they had just come out with this um, milestones project where they were trying to have each subspecialty come up with benchmarks and milestones for all of the trainees in their program that they would then have to meet before graduation. But when I hear milestones, I think about the Denver development scale in pediatrics that was developed by watching 2000 normally developing children and assessing what can they do and what can they not do at particular points or ages in development. This is not the way it was going with the ACGME. They came right. to the quote unquote experts and they did what we refer to in science as the Delphi method where they poll the experts and then c come up with a conclusion based on the majority opinion of the experts. And I felt that this was just wrong, that this isn't the way that we would do it if we were to build it. And so it was kind of backwards and I was, um, quite agitated and irritated about it because it's something that had been on my mind before. And it was so a little off topic, but he interrupted me and he said, that's what you should be doing. And I said, what? And he said, think about it. In your lab, there's about five people in the world that really care whether or not this cell interacts with this other cell. And, you know, you might get it published and you might get tenure, but it's really not going to impact much in the global scheme of things. But if you could fix that, you could impact a lot of people not just the trainees, but all of the patients that they will ever touch in their life. And I walked out of there really upset, mad even, because that's not what I came to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I was there to save my lab, and he had first told me that I shouldn't be trying to save it, and then told me I should be doing this thing about milestones that they weren't even getting right, and what am I gonna do about that? And I kind of went off in a huff, and I went to Mass Ioneer, and I did their retreat, and I went home and tried to rewrite my grant, 
but he's planted a seed in my head. And over the years, as it got harder and harder to get the funding and my research morphed from the developmental neurobiology that I wanted to be doing into neuroprotection, because that's where I found myself after a bunch of grant reviews, I realized I really wasn't doing what I loved anymore, and it was time to give it up. And what year was this, just so we understand on the timeline? This would have been about two years ago. Okay. Um, so uh, probably about this time, it was April 2014. Um, so... But I'm not the kind of person to just give up and walk away and, and you know, chalk it up to, oh, that was a nice try. I'm, I'm a little sort of academically ADHD, and there had to be something for me to be doing with the time that I used to spend doing my basic science research. So I actually, after about, about five weeks after I announced the closing of my lab, um, and it took, a, I don't know, maybe three or four months to, to dial it down, and, and I had to get my technician into graduate school and all of that. Mm-hmm. I did a cold call to the ACGME. There was a brand new vice president of milestones and I picked up the phone and I called him and I said, we're not going about this the right way. And I have some ideas for how we can do it right. And I would like to have a conversation with you. And that man is Dan Hamstra and he has been a mentor and uh, a collaborator on a lot of the science that I've been trying to, to build and put together. And uh, I'll actually be seeing him this weekend at the ACGME meeting. Um, but he was supportive and that was the biggest thing because this is not the kind of science that scientists do. This is really a, a, a wide open space and I'm trying to, to bring the same kind of rigor that basic scientists have in their research programs to education. And that's novel. And it's not been an easy process. Um, there's a lot of resistance, but at the same time, it's pretty exciting because if what we're trying to do works, it's going to change the way that we train doctors and it's going to change the way that we measure uh, quality in, in healthcare. There's a, a big push right on, on right now to measure quality in physician care and then actually pay you for the quality you deliver. Yet right. the metrics are ill-defined and probably not even measuring what we think they're measuring. Right. So to have some rigor in this, I think, is, is, is it's time. It's due. And that's exactly what we're here to talk about today. Before we get to that, though, you know, we talked a little bit about this offline, but how much of your time was taken just in the pursuit of grant money? And this is time taken away from other interests and other research. I mean, if you had to just give an average, give us an idea of how much of that was being sucked away. Way too much. So I was about a 30% clinician, so 70% research. And I would estimate that probably 80% of that time was spent in some manner um, doing administrative work toward getting a grant, whether that be writing the grant itself or designing the experiments that the reviewer wanted to see to resubmit the grant or in trying to write the papers uh, to make sure that you have enough um, re- real substance behind your, your um, claims to convince the reviewers that you can actually do these things. But it was really more administrative than scientific and that sucks the fun out of it. <laughs> I'd really rather be in the laboratory working, you know, with the experiments and analyzing the data. And, and it really got to the point where I didn't have time to do that anymore. And, um, you know, to some extent that happens naturally as you're running a laboratory where you have graduate students and postdocs and technicians that are doing much of that work for you. But the PI is still supposed to be heavily involved in the experimental design and the data analysis. And I felt like I never had enough time to do those things. Um, I was always doing them on the fly and not doing it well because so much of my time was spent 
chasing the money. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. So let's uh, move forward here. You know, you were looking at other options and you came across crowdfunding. What did you think about it at first? I mean, I imagine you might've been skeptical and take us through your thought process. I think I was entertained more than skeptical because my science, the, the experiment that I was trying to get funded was crowdsourcing assessment of surgical skill. So I found it quite entertaining that I could crowdfund my crowdsourcing experiment. <laughs> it just seemed to fit. Right. Um, and I, I was trying to think uh, before the interview about how I stumbled onto experiment.com, and I can't remember. Um, I know it was a stumbling. I, I literally stumbled upon it. And um, I'm glad I did because it was a great experience. Um, but it wasn't something that I, I set out to do. Uh, initially, but as soon as I found it, it just seemed like the right fit. Well, once you found it, you have an interesting hypothesis here, and that's what we're going to spend a lot of time on. Just tell us about the process of actually posting an experiment here and getting funding through this model. How did it work for you? Well, it very clearly um, highlighted how old I really am (laughs) because it was, it's sort of like website building. Um, you got to have pictures, you've got to have pithy little catchphrases. Um, it was, it was difficult for me. And, and we actually, uh, talked a little bit to some of the support, uh, folks at experiment.com during the process, um, because they kept reminding me, this is not like writing a grant. This is telling a story. This is not like writing a grant. And I, I had done my original version and they called me and said, can we do a, a conference call? And I said, sure. And then they started asking questions just like you're doing right now. And in the process of that, I was able to articulate pretty clearly what it was I was trying to accomplish. And what Denny said to me is, that's what you need to write on the experiment.com page. It needs to be more like a conversation and less like a grant, which is very difficult for people who have written grants for years and years to do. You you don't write a grant like a conversation. You try to prove a point. It's more more logical. And and so that was an adjustment for me. That was a difficult transition to make, although they were great about walking me through it. Right. Well, the irony is it it is um, very similar to writing a grant, just with a completely different language. Exactly. I mean, the grants, they want pictures. They want want, um, the uh, language to be right just right to catch their eye and everything like that. And once you know that, mm-hmm. you know, it's been proven once you have a grant, it's easier to get the next sure. grant along the way. Mm-hmm. So it's really um, just a completely different um, set of skills, but it's using them in, in much the same way. It's just um, trying to bring it to a different audience. Exactly. Yeah. And a little little learning curve, but uh, yeah. it, was, it was a good experience. It's um, it's nice to, to, to learn something new. <laughs> yeah. Did um, one of the things that caught my eye about experiment.com and I um, and caught my eye, I used that joke before about that really <laughs> amazing picture that you that you have. I mean, that that certainly caught my eye and reminded me why I didn't go into ophthalmology. Um, but um, was the um, was the the layout was the the sort of personal almost the process driven way that you have to present your work. The lab notes, for instance, is, is mm-hmm. I think one of the most brilliant parts. Did you find that helpful as you were going? Was it, um, to know you were going to write was what was essentially a blog version of your lab. Was that something that, that really changed the way you approach the research? Was it something that, that has changed the way you even thought about the whole process? Um, no, I found it liberating actually. Um, 
you know, we've been talking for a little while here now. I tend to to get, I have a lot that I want to say, and one thought sort of leads to another, and there's there are a lot of points that I'd like to make. In a grant, you're very constrained because you have a you have a six page limit, and you can't get all of the points you want onto that paper, and you have to focus on the points that the reviewers want to see, not the points you want to make. Right. Whereas with the lab notes, I can put as many of them out there as I want. So if someone responds to me, and this is exactly what happened with one of the lab notes, they come back with, oh, well, you don't need to do this because they're already doing this thing at University of Iowa that's so great, particularly about how they train surgeons and that if you just train them the right way, you don't need to, you don't need to do this. And ironically, she hadn't read the whole thing. Her program director at Iowa had actually endorsed my project <laughs> because he understands that it's both. That the problem right. with education research, if you, so the idea is that you make an intervention and the residents will become better surgeons. He understands, the program director who's there, who has made great strides in, in surgical education and has a, a process that he says works very well and we've all lifted from his, his format. Um, he will fully and, and, and honestly admit to you, I can't prove that this really makes them better because there's no way to measure how good they are and without the ability to assess how good they are, I can't tell you really whether they're better having gone through my process or going through the old fashioned way. Right. What I can tell you is they're more comfortable, the faculty are more comfortable, and our numbers have gone up. And we think the numbers go up because they're more efficient because they're better surgeons. He said, but they're surrogate markers. They're not really assessing skill, which is what we're trying to accomplish with our research. And they go together, that you can't have one without the other. Right. One of the great things, if we can actually pull this off, uh, is that we can start to measure what a what an intervention, educational intervention, will do. Mm -hmm. um, ironically, I went to a couple of the companies that build equipment for ophthalmic surgery to ask for grant funding. They all turned me down until they said, if you can prove it works, let us know. Because <laughs> once we can measure it, we'd love to take a bunch of residents and put them on our new brand new machine and see if they're better surgeons on our brand new machine than they are on our old machine. Of course. Of but course. would they want to do open yeah. notes with that? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, that's a whole right. other question. <laughs> I tried to explain to them that if you actually fund the building of the of the process, then you know, you'll know you be the first one in line when we actually want to apply it to something, but they didn't go for that. <laughs> that's right. Come back when we, when you have the data. It's yeah. funny. Yeah. We've well, all heard that, unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> did, did you find that um, along the way, or have you found along the way, you're getting feedback to know that, that there are people out there looking at your lab notes and, and following your progress on experiment.com? Because that's a much different thing as well. Yes, some. It's, um, you can actually, the, so experiment.com has, has, I guess you call them diagnostics, um, where you can go in okay. and you can see how many people have viewed your page. Um, and when I post a new one, there, there are a lot more hits uh, and then it kind of falls off. Um, but you can actually follow that in real time and, and see where you're getting the interest. Um, it's funny because I got a lot more hits with the reason why I'm doing it than I did with the this is the finding. Um, mm. But, you know, that's that's OK. It, it, the reason behind doing it is is critical. And the finding, right. while important, is it's only one experiment. I'm going to keep doing this with other opportunities as well, because the reasoning behind it stays the same, whether this particular experiment works or not, whether crowdsourcing really does work is less critical than we need to find a cost-effective way of measuring surgical skill. 
you see, you explain the reasoning too well. They've said, oh, well, we don't have to read the results. Right. Then. It's all in the process. <laughs> so. Well, just for everybody listening, uh, just to make sure everybody's up to speed, I'm looking at the title right now and it says, how do you know a surgeon in training is ready to operate independently? Well, that obviously caught our eye. That's why we're here today. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting question. And not just for surgeons, not just for residents, but for patients. Correct. And we're not, you know, you'd think that you might have gathered some of your other colleagues' attendings to watch a video and assess skill, but you're actually looking at the layperson here. Correct. So tell us, Susan, what, what's going on here with this, this experiment? And what's the methodology? And what, what would our, uh, our listeners see right now if they're on the webpage, which we'll provide a link to later? Sure. So the idea here is, um, I think my husband had the best analogy. You may never have been a figure skater, but when you're watching the Winter Olympics, you can tell the difference between who's going to be in medal contention and who's not. And you don't have to have had experience in being a skater to be able to see that skill when it's on display in front of you. And I feel that it's the same thing with surgical skill. Now, particular techniques, specific little caveats of a, of a maneuver may be a little bit too much for the layperson to discern. Um, you know, I'm sure the layperson can't tell you the difference between the triple lutz and the double toe loop. Maybe some could, mm-hmm. I can't. I just know if they landed it, they're more likely to get the medal. And that I think comes through even in surgical maneuvering. So when you look at the video on the experiment.com page, we have an expert surgeon on the left and we have a resident surgeon on the right. And that resident surgeon's actually doing a pretty decent job of removing the nucleus from the eye, but it's very clear that they don't have the same skill level as the expert on the left. And I don't think it takes too much expertise to be able to determine which of those two videos belongs to the expert and belongs to the resident. And yeah, and, and we both watched this video. And again, just for everybody who's listening, just take us through this video really quick. What what are they seeing when they watch this? So the way that we remove a nucleus, uh, so the, the cataract is, is when the nucleus of the eye, the, the lens of the eye becomes opaque. Um, it's not completely um, devoid of any light passing through, but it, it turns yellow. It's like the difference between looking through a glass of water and looking through a glass of apple juice. And it distorts mm-hmm. the image if you have to look through the colored liquid. Uh, it's the same thing with the lens. It starts to turn yellow and gets denser with increasing age, and that blocks the light. The way that we treat that is to take that cataractus lens out of the eye. Uh, we refer to the cataractus lens as the nucleus of the, of the lens. And once it's removed to put an artificial lens implant into the eye that, the, that is clear and uh, can, you can see better with it. The way that that's done is with uh, something called a FACO machine, which is an ultrasonic um, device that breaks up the lens into little teeny tiny pieces that then can be aspirated out of the eye. And typically this is done by putting a a groove down the middle of the lens. Um, And then once there's a groove in there, you can crack it into smaller pieces. And then you can remove each of those smaller pieces with the ultrasound machine to get it out of the eye. And it's pretty clear that's what's going on once you've heard it and you're looking at the the video, um, you can see as it gets cracked into smaller and smaller pieces, it's easier for that little hand piece to just kind of suck them up into the tip and then they go away. It's almost like vacuuming them out of there. It's a little more complicated than that because the ultrasound has to break it up for it to to go into the tip, but that's pretty much what you're doing. 
Um, and you can see that the expert does it very smoothly and efficiently, whereas the resident takes time making the groove, getting things oriented correctly, spinning the nucleus into another orientation so they can make another groove. It's just more tedious. It's much slower. Um, not dangerous, not um, concerning from the standpoint of it's going to come out of the eye. Uh, it just is not as skillfully executed. So right now, with your residents, how do you assess their skill in the program right now, and how do you know they're ready to to do this uh, procedure on their own? And how does that compare to watching these videos and the and the experiment you're putting together here? Right. So it's not close, and that's part of the problem. And it sort of gives me heart failure um, knowing that that I'm complicit in this um, really lousy way of assessing. Now, having said that, people are motivated to do the right thing. What we have is we have a group of faculty who are teaching faculty who uh, attend the resident surgeries with them, and they're sitting side by side as they go through their surgical maneuvering, and they provide feedback both to the resident and to me as the program director to say, okay, well, this is where you're struggling. This is where you're doing really well. I want you to go to the wet lab and practice this and then come back. And then over the course of a 36-month residency, they make sure that all of them are ready to be able to operate independently at the end of their training. We have one uh, uh, surgical assessment that we use that um, we're actually doing an experiment on that assessment as well to try to, to look to see. It has what we call content validity, meaning we used it last year uh, as a tool to assess um, skill from the opinion of the attending. And that's all we have right now is the opinion mm -hmm. of the attending. So we're trusting these people that their opinion actually means something because that's all we've got. But the tool itself, um, the original paper actually was published by Stan Hamstra, who's the vice president for milestones at ACGME. It was developed for orthopedic surgery, but there are only five choices on the tool, which is why it's so effective. Because if you have a long, complicated tool like we used in the experiment.com experiment, faculty won't use it. It's too complex. That's it's right. too convoluted. It takes too much time. They won't do it or they'll do it badly. And that's worse. Um, so this one has five choices. One is I had to do. The attending had to do everything. The resident is only assisting because they don't have the skill or the judgment to do any part of the case. The second one is I had to talk them through. They're able to do portions of the case, but I had to talk through every step because they don't have enough knowledge to be able to do it on their own. The third category, which is very common for residents, is I had to prompt from time to time. There are aspects of the case that they can run through on their own without really needing much guidance, but then they hit a point where they need to be talked through it again. The fourth is I had to be in the room just in case where the resident's actually doing pretty well. They're independent. They're not actually intervening anymore, but there's enough concern on the part of the attending that they want to be in that co-pilot seat just in case. And then the fifth is I didn't even need to be there. And what we find is that if we use this tool, we used it over the 12 months at the uh, last academic year, the first and second year, res uh, sorry, the first year residents tend to be a one and a two, either I had to do or I had to talk them through. The second year span from I had to talk them through all the way up to I had to be in the room just in case, depending on what surgical maneuver they're doing. And then the graduating residents tend to be fours and fives. Uh, so we have content validity, meaning that the tool is actually predicting what we would expect, which is increasing skill with increasing time and training. Now, we don't have the capacity at this point to correlate those scores with, say, an objective measure of skill like we would get out of the experiment.com uh, study. 
but ultimately that's what we hope to do is be able to link those two things. And then we'd feel confident that our tool that is the opinion of the attending is actually a good predictor of competence uh, for resident training. So in a way, it's like knowing that the gymnast is qualified to be in the Olympics. They've made that. They're Correct. an Olympic athlete, but we don't know how they compare it to everybody else. Right. Yeah. And that's a big question. So I have my 15 residents in my program. There are 400 and some odd across the country. And, you know, is my average resident the same as an average resident somewhere else? Or is my average resident actually really not very good compared to the other average residents across the country? And without the ability to be able to measure these things across a large group, I'll never know the answer to that question. So um, right now, though, um, could you set up panels of experts to do this? I mean, you talk a little bit about the uh, the figure skaters and say, well, we can't, they can't tell a, a triple axel from a triple lutz, which is true. But isn't that something that you kind of would like to know, especially as you get towards the, sta- the stage where somebody's just about to step up into practice? Don't you feel like you need that expertise? Or do you think that your research is actually going to show, no, you don't need that expertise, that you'll still be able to judge the competence? That is exactly the question. And, and I, I am more interested in the absolute outcome of the experiment, well-designed and well-executed, than I am in you know placing a bet on the outcome. Um, the, the problem with the expert is that they're extremely expensive and they take forever. So it's not feasible. Um, and feasibility is a big thing in education because everyone knows there's no money in education. You know, this is something that faculty do out of the goodness of their heart, not because they're getting paid to do it. And as a matter of fact, if you operate with a resident, it takes you longer than if you operated the case without the resident. So you could actually make more money and, you know, get home to see your family sooner if you didn't train residents. So mm-hmm. there's really a disincentive for education, educating residents. So anything we do to put additional uh, onus on them uh, with, you know, asking them to now go home and review the video and grade it with this long onerous tool is really not going to happen. It's not, not a viable solution. So we have to come up with other mechanisms that are going to be more feasible in terms of time and in terms of cost. Now, the next level, I think, to the uh, crowdsourcing idea would be artificial intelligence. Can we get computers programmed to be able to measure some of the things that the expert knows intuitively? So one of the um, categories on the grading scale is time and motion. How long does it take for the resident to do the maneuver that they're trying to do? The expert does it quickly and accurately. The resident does it accurately, but it takes them forever. That's something that you would think artificial intelligence would be able to pick up on because you can put the little marker on the tip of the FACO handpiece and ask how much movement does it have inside the eye and find out does that movement inside the eye as calculated by artificial intelligence correlate with the expert score on time and motion. And my expectation is that yes, it would. We're not ready for prime time there yet, but that would be the next phase and that would be a lot less expensive even than crowdsourcing. Right. Yeah, because back to sports, I think they already do this in the NBA. I mean, they actually have, I read about this, they have cameras almost at every angle of the court, and they have mm-hmm. data on every position of the player, what they were doing, their movements. Uh, I think even more in baseball, actually. So the technology definitely exists to at least sure. capture this. But yeah. Um, yeah. the next step, of course, would be putting together a study. Well, anyway, back, right. to, uh, back to what we're talking about here. You didn't do that. You didn't have... Um, you know, experts looking at this, we talked about, you know, the reasons why not you're looking at 
just regular folks like me, for example. So right. how'd you pick these people and what, what have you found so far? Right. So um, we actually contracted with a, um, a company called CSATS um, who does crowdsourcing for surgical assessments. They're um, in Seattle, Washington, and they're a spinoff company, um, entrepreneurial investment from the University of Washington. Um, and we contracted with them to hire the, uh, we call them the, the lay raiders, from Amazon Turks. That's where they come from. Yeah. So you can do this yourself by just going on Amazon.com. Um, and the, the key there is that you have to be able to vet the, um, the lay people a little bit. What you don't want to run into is, um, someone who's done this over and over and over again, because then they're no longer a, a lay raider. They're a lay expert in quotations. Um, mm -hmm. you know, the expert has knowledge and skill that they bring to the assessment, but the lay person is meant to be completely naive. Everybody brings their own bias to the, to the task but it's a, a bias independent of the task itself. Once you've done it a few times, then you have a bias that's related to the task itself. Um, so they do have to do some screening to make sure you don't have the same people coming back again to do multiple reviews. But what they do is basically they upload all of these videos, they send them off to Amazon Turks, 30 or 40, uh, it's a range from 30 to 40, independent lay raiders will come in and they, they have to watch a little video clip about, uh, it's a cartoon, about what cataract surgery entails. Then they're given the rating scale and they're given the video and they're asked just to make their best effort at grading the surgical skill. And what we found was that the correlation between the scores that the experts, we had- and I'm sorry, Susan, experts. what is that scale there? What are, what are they supposed to be looking for? So there are five components to it. Um, now I'm pulling it out of my head because I don't have it in front of me. Um, one is respect for tissue on a scale of one to five. Uh, one is time and motion. One is um, uh, efficacy. They're, they're, they're overlapping. Let me just pull it up, and then that way I'll be able to tell you for sure. Um, but there, there are five categories. Each of the five categories have a scale of one to five, and there are anchors. It's in, I think, Lab Note 2. Right. Um, yeah, I, I pulled it up. Right. Yeah, the scale is actually in there. So microscope centration... Yes. Economy of movement, respect for tissue, quote, flow of operation, quote, and instrument handling is the fifth. Exactly. And so what they're doing is, you know, without any evidence of what instrument handling is in a cataract surgery, they're trying to use their best okay. guess for what that might be and then give it a score from one to five. And what we found was that the um, experts for any given video used the full range of the scale. So anywhere from a score of five, which is the lowest you could get a one in each of the categories to 25, which is five in each of the categories. They used the full range depending on what they observed in the video. We found that the crowd was less likely to do that. Um, and when I say the crowd, I, I kind of mean it that way. We don't have a score from any individual in the crowd. It's always an average of the scores submitted by the crowd. So some are high and some are low, and some of those individuals may actually nail the, the true score that we get from the experts, um, but that's not the point. The point is that there's a um, kind of regression to the mean, and if you average a bunch of lay raters together, then they, they very accurately predict the true outcome. So what we found is the correlation between the expert grading and the crowd was very high. 
um, on the order of just below 0.9, which was shocking to me, much better than I really anticipated for this um, for this experiment. Uh, having said that, the Lab Note 11 shows you the real data, the raw data. This was something that uh, Jeff Lickman taught me when I was a graduate student that uh, you always want to look at the raw data, that mm -hmm. statistics are meant to describe with a number what you can see with your naked eye in the data. And in this case, it's not so clear. So despite the correlation being really good at like 0.8987, um, the when you look at it, you can tell that the crowd really doesn't say the same thing that the experts did. Now, when the crowd score goes up, the expert score goes up. When the crowd score goes down, the expert score goes down. They hug each other in terms of the ups and downs beautifully, but the actual score is is not as as well represented as we would have hoped. Now, what we've done since then, uh, and it's time for me to update my lab notes, um, is when I look at that, I think, okay, well, they go up and down the same way, but they're not equal. And what else in the world is like that? Well, the first thing I thought of was like temperature. So you've got Celsius and you've got Fahrenheit and they go up and down the same, but they don't go up and down by the same amount. Mm -hmm. But there's a conversion factor you can use to translate one into the other. And can we do this with the crowd score, have some kind of conversion factor that would make it resemble the, the experts better? And the answer is yes. So the other thing that fell out of our data analysis is that time actually correlates extremely well with expert score, even better than the crowd did, believe it or not. Wow. And I think part of the reason for that is when we went through those uh, categories on the grading scale, the four of the five categories actually involve or don't involve time, but will be affected by time. So let me let me clarify that. Right. So the one that does not follow the rule is respect for tissue. Time doesn't really enter into that factor. You're either causing unnecessary damage or force or handling something inappropriately. Time doesn't really factor into that. But if you look at microscope centration, it's how well is the eye centered in the, the middle of the field as you're doing your surgery. You can imagine if you start to move off of the center of the microscope, you have to recenter it. And recentering right. it takes, takes time. time. Right. The next one is economy of movement. If you're not very economical in your movement, you're gonna make unnecessary movements and those waste time. Flow of operation. Obviously, if you're not flowing well, it's going to take longer. And even with instrument handling, what we're trying to get at with instrument handling is usually you use two instruments to do the cataract surgery. One is that phaco machine that's sucking the nucleus out of the eye. The other is a, a second instrument that sort of feeds the pieces into the tip of the phaco machine. Mm -hmm. And if you're not using that second instrument well to feed the tip, it's going to take you longer. So four of the five categories would cause you to be uh, increasing time if your score on that category was low. So I think that's why the correlation between time and expert score was so close. Now, if we use that time variable and take that plus the crowd score and do a little math with it that I don't understand that our st statistician's really good at, you, <laughs> yeah, can makes me feel better. Get, <laughs> you can actually get a graph that looks very similar to the uh, expert score. And that's the lab note that I really need to post next yeah. on my experiment.com site that you guys see in your in your slide deck, but uh, right. I need to put a put a lab right. note up. So, so Susan, a quick question. If the time cor correlates so well with the expert, why use the crowd 
uh, rating at all. At all. I'm just, I'm just being devil's advocate about this, but it seems there's a good correlation. Absolutely. Absolutely. But again, correlation is not the same. So it's, it's not really linear. Um, so we'd have to do one of two things, either use it as a variable and the crowd as a variable and come up with an equation like we did for the slide deck. The second is to come up with a, a second way of, um, manipulating the time data so that it, it, correlates better to in a linear way you know we'd have to transform the data so that it so that it is more linearly related to the expert score now that may turn out to actually be a really good strategy and one of the things that we've criticized in the past but it's because there's no data not because it's not true is when i talked about the university of iowa and the teaching um, curriculum there one of the things that they used as a surrogate for skill was time Right. They said, well, our, our residents are now faster surgeons than they were before we had this intervention. And Tom Oding will be the first person to tell you that we don't know if that's really predicting better skill, but we think it does. Well, our data would argue that it did and that we've now got data to substantiate the metric that, that they've been using because it's the only one they had. I see. <laughs> you can measure time pretty easily. It's cheap and it's feasible, right? right? Those are the two things we need. So that's what they were using. But now we actually have data with expert scores to correlate with it that says that time is a reasonable variable to use. I see. So there is a scenario where you could double back and you find out, yes, time really is the best way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's very and, interesting. And it's all in the data. And this is really what I'm right. interested in is collect right. the data, look at what it tells you. And then, you know, we might decide that it costs way too much to do the crowdsourcing, but time is a really good metric. Yeah. It's so interesting that in uh, orthopedics, at least, the uh, so-called value-based medicine, they're using time as the surrogate for value. And it works on two fronts. Obviously, it's the same thing about uh, about um, uh, quality because mm-hmm. you can associate time with outcomes to some degree and certainly time with the quality of the surgeon, but also, of course, time is money. So right. um, it all comes down to that, uh, that measurable commodity. Mm-hmm. Um, one other interesting question that, that just and this is probably too off topic to even discuss. Why does CSATs exist if the data wasn't there to say that the crowd uh, rating was was even worth it? Why? Who ha- who would have a company that would have lay people judge um, looking at um, at operative procedures if there wasn't data to say that was worthwhile? Um. Hmm. It's not off topic. It's very (laughs) poignant. And um, I have opinions about it, but I also have an experiment that I need them to analyze for me this summer. Oh, okay. (laughs) They they are um, actually selling this um, idea to hospitals Uh to use for recertification. And I argued with them vehemently that this is totally inappropriate, that you have to actually do the study like the one that we're doing prior to trying to say that this actually measures skill. Um, in some surgical procedures, they found that this, the crowd actually cor- not just correlates well with the experts, but the scores are very similar. But mm-hmm. I tried to make the point that you can't generalize that without doing the experiment first. And as a case in point, another group did the same thing with cataract surgery. Their, their data was much worse than ours. And I think it had a lot to do with the way that we designed our experiment. We spent a lot of time in advance of contracting with CSAS about which tool we were going to use, how we were going to collect the data, what portions of the surgical procedure were we going to evaluate. 
because we wanted to make sure that we did this right and it was reproducible. And their their take on it was, look, if there's one of these tools out here, and the one that they used is something called the Grassus. We used, we chose OSATs for a good reason. They used mm -hmm. Grassus. Um, we didn't think Grassus was a good tool. And they used Grassus for their other experiment. And I, I don't think it was that the... Um, that that the idea was wrong i think it was that they chose the wrong tool because they didn't put a lot of thought into it they said this is a published validated and reliable tool to to grade surgical skill and ophthalmology and therefore we can just give it to the lay people and it's going to work um we looked at it and said no there are a lot of elements on grassis that are you know what do you think the resident's judgment was you can't answer that question from a, a video and a lot of the verbiage in, in the tool was were, were things like that, that really were asking for higher level um, judgments to be made in doing the grading. Whereas OSATs is really, it's about, you know, it's, it's it, it's, it the, the verbiage is something anybody could understand. They kept the eye centered. They maintained a good view with the microscope. I think mm -hmm. any lay person can understand that. They don't have to have knowledge of the actual maneuver to be able to get what they're getting at there. And the grasses was, the verbiage was different such that I think you had to have a little bit of expertise to be able to use the tool appropriately. So it's a little, um, uh, the other the other thing about CSATs is it's, it's prohibitively expensive. Right. And their, their model, their business model is to sell this to hospitals to use for credentialing. Their uh -huh. business model is not to use this for education. Um, although they've tried to sell it to education um, programs to use to grade their residents, but uh, a year's worth of assessments is $30,000. And we certainly don't have that kind of budget in our residency program. Right. Um, so it's it's really um, not something that I see. And I kind of in my talk, I think, used a, a, an asterisk next to cost effective um, <laughs> or affordable because if you go through CSATs, it's not. But if the if the experiment works, we can go through Amazon Turks, and that really is less expensive. Right. Interesting. It's just something someone may wonder about this, but we have to have something to compare this to, obviously. So we look at the expert panel. Tell us about them a little bit, because one, how many experts did you use in this? And is there anything out there where you might, I mean, obviously each residency program might be a little bit different than other ones. We all see surgeons who come out doing things a certain way because that's the way they were taught to do it. Mm -hmm. um, have you ever thought about comparing maybe a, you know, a, a group of attendings against a group of attendings at another university? Uh, would that even be worth doing? So that, that has been done. That's the tool that's validated and reliable. That's what they, they say it's done. So okay. if you take different experts and you use the tool, you get the same answer. Um, and so, so I have not repeated that. I'm trusting on face value that when they publish that, they it's true. Um, what I can say is that my expert panel was made up of experts from multiple institutions. We had gotcha. one from Boston University, one from uh, the University of Pittsburgh, um, three that were affiliated with Washington University, but two of the three are actually in private practice in town. So they're not part of my, they're, they're part of my teaching staff, but they do didactic lectures. They don't actually train our residents in surgery. So, and I did that on purpose because I didn't, these are my residents and I didn't necessarily want the surgeons who were teaching them, grading them because they might have, they might have some suspicion about which surgeon was which video. <laughs> and I wanted that completely right. out of the, the whole point of the video is to make it unbiased. So these right. are people who would never interact surgically with any of these residents. 
uh, with the exception of me. I was the fifth expert. And and I don't teach cataract surgery. I only teach strabismus surgery. So I felt like I would have no idea which resident was which as I did the, the grading. Um, so I tried to get a diverse group of experts. What was shocking to me was how well the expert correla- the experts correlated. It was like off the chart. Um, let's see, that's lab note 10. And the correlation coefficient for my experts was 0.976. Larry, that that's answers like, wow. that's, that's crazy. That's like as close to one as I've ever seen. And I, I, I'm still kind of shocked because like I said, I don't teach cataract surgery. I teach strabismus surgery, so I was afraid I was going to be the major big-time outlier (laughs) because this is not what I do. I was just judging it as someone who is an expert in in ophthalmic surgery and who has done cataract surgery and taught cataract surgery, but not not anymore. That's not what I do. Um, And yet I was spot on with all of my other four experts, uh, which does go to show that once you've got expertise in an area, it's, you know, you know what you're looking for. Uh, We talked a little bit offline about the fact that a lot of this, the collection of the videos, or at least um, some of the the collection of the data is readily available or readily doable in ophthalmology. Uh, And you pointed out the bariatric surgery as well. There are other types of surgery that are either too big or too long, or be very difficult to get a a bite-sized snippet that you could really get some measure of, of quality on, I think. Do you think that this will eventually be applicable to every surgical subspecialty or uh, in some way? Will will other residencies uh, be able to use this type of tool? I think it will. Um, and certainly that's what CSATs is banking on. Um, they say it can be applied to anything, anytime. Right. Um, and, and I and I do agree that, that it could be applied to just about any assessment of skill. Um, how you do that, how you execute it is going to be constrained by the types of surgeries you're actually doing. And you're absolutely right. Some are too long. Let's just go with cataract surgery. Cataract surgery is very short, but the experts really, sorry, the lay raters really have to have a 10 minute video. This is the constraint that we have. And while an expert can do a cataract surgery from beginning to end in 10 minutes, a resident cannot. So we chose just the disassembly of the nu- nucleus, that one key, what we call key portion of the case, to be what we recorded and sent off to the experts or to the lay people to review. And so that was only one little piece. So you could make the argument that in order to determine whether they're competent, you'd have to have six different 10-minute videos where they do the capsulorexis and then they do the nuclear disassembly and then they do the the IA of the cortex and then they do the lens implantation and each of those would be a separate video that needs to be assessed. I don't know that that's true. We'd certainly have to do the the, the, the experiment to determine right. whether it is, but my in, in just as many years of teaching residents as I have, if you can take apart the nucleus then your skill's not going to be any better or worse in that step than it is in one of the other steps. Or at least not to the point where you're going to be competent or incompetent based on which step you're looking at. Um, you know, maybe better at one step than another, but you're still going to be able to be at a certain threshold level. Um, and I think that's what's going to happen with some of these other surgeries that you're alluding to that are just way too long. There may be some key critical portion of the case that you can hone in on and, and right. measure that. For a lot of surgical disciplines, including general surgery, they haven't looked at actual surgical skill. They've looked at wet lab and dry lab um, components and said, okay, well, how well do they do uh, in the lab simulated surgery? 
-hmm. And the bulk of what's published is actually on simulated surgery, not on surgery itself, which is one of the things that's so interesting about ours is it's real surgery. It's the actual procedure. Um, and, And I think that's where this needs to go. That should be the next step. Yeah. Well, the question I would have, even in ophthalmology, is um, does competence in cataract surgery equate to competence in ophthalmologic surgery across the board? I mean, does that mean that these people can do strabismus surgery or some of the other ones? Um, I know in in, uh, orthopedics, which of course is is near and dear to me, it stratifies. There are people who are great at total hips, but, but... wouldn't know a spine from right. um, a hole in the in the wall if they right. if you paid them to do it. Yeah, no, I and, think that that's legitimate and 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 real. I, I do because I don't think that those who are great cataract surgeons are necessarily the best strabismus surgeons and vice versa. However, for the steps of the cataract surgery, I think you have to be good at all of them in order to be a good cataract surgeon. Right. Um, and same thing for strabismus, but. There's a very different thing to intraocular microsurgery and extraocular surgery. Strabismus mm-hmm. surgery is going to be far more like plastic surgery than it is like ophthalmology. Um, right. And, you know, the good person point. who does a great cataract surgery might be really good at placing tubes in baby's ears um, <laughs> because the skill set is similar. Um, right. I, I think that the that one doesn't necessarily predict the other when you're talking about different kinds of surgery. Um, but certainly within a, a category, it probably will. Okay. So um, obviously it's a ways to go before we're there, but do you see this type of tool as being a means towards deciding when people should be um, uh, progressed or when they should be graduated from programs? I do. There's a a fairly famous um, uh, University of North Carolina in the old days. Um, We always used to say it was one and whatever because it was entirely reliant on the chief of of orthopedics to say, you're not ready yet. You have to come another year. You're not ready yet. You have to come another year. And finally, it said, "Okay, you're ready. Right. So do you think that a scenario where somebody would be, you know, really top dog would be one and two or one and three and then um, somebody else might be one and four or even one and four and a half before they reach this skill set? Well, and that is a fascinating question because one of the things I have, I think it's in the lab notes too, my um, thought about after years of teaching residents, I've got sort of four categories of learners. I've got my golden hands resident. They do Mm -hmm. one and two and they're ready. And then I've got my typical learner who takes a little while longer to get there, but, you know, pretty quickly ramps up and, 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 you know, hits their stride. Then I've got what I call the needs intervention group. They're a little slow taking off, but you get them into the wet lab, you work with them a little bit, and they straighten themselves out and they do fine. They almost end up as good as the typical learner by the end. And then there's the heart failure resident. And that's the one that a lot of this research is motivated by because we don't have any good data right now to say to that person, you're never going to be good enough. We need to find you another career. Mm. And that's a very difficult conversation to have. And it would be wonderful as a program director to have data I could point to to say, it's not just my opinion. There's data here, and this is where you fall. And the best sort of analogy that I could give would be um, training fighter pilots in the the U.S. Navy, or probably the Air Force as well. Um, The person that we spoke to was a a naval uh, pilot who came and spoke to us about the steps that pilots have to go through to become a Navy pilot. And there are a lot of sort of, you know, do a few, do a few, do a few practice, but then there's some hard stops. You have to do 
this many, you know, in the simulator, for example, you have to land on the carrier deck 10 times without error in the simulator before you're allowed to get in the plane. And if you can't do that by whatever, six months in training, you're kicked out of the program. Mm. And because it's not just, and their justification isn't that that person would never get to be proficient, but the time lag it takes to get them proficient is not a good investment of the taxpayer's money. And I would argue with residency training, it's the same thing because the taxpayer is paying for residents to train. And my concern is, in my experience, the ones that take the longest to ramp up are the ones that I always have doubts about whether they're ever really ready anyway. And I think we just kind of get tired of, of, you know, we get to the end and we're like, okay, if you can do the next 10 cases without without an error, you'll graduate. And then you just hold your breath, hoping they're not going to screw up. And that's a really lousy metric to use. Right. It's not a, it's not safe. It's not a good metric, but we don't have anything better to go on. And we have to give feedback to the trainees. We can't just arbitrarily say ah, you're not good enough. We have to say why right. they're not good enough. We have to say, OK, well, these are our, our thresholds, our benchmarks that you have to achieve for us to say you're good enough. And, you know, right now they're arbitrary, to be quite honest. Yeah. yeah and if and you look used- at a oh, go ahead, Keith. Go ahead. I was just going to uh, say, you've used the De- uh, Denver development scale as as sort of a model and a guide um, it, to some degree. And really, um, as a, I was a pediatric orthopedist, so I saw a lot of developmental orthopedics. To some degree, it wasn't necessarily where they were on the scale, so long as they were making the progression that the, right. the scale shows they're supposed to do. Right. Um, do you think that this will give you the tools to say, I mean, maybe it's not that important where a person scores on the first year, but it right. is important that by the second, third year, you're seeing exactly. uh, a genuine improvement and it's along the same scale as what you see the people who get out into a successful practice are. Exactly. So, for example, my husband's a pediatric psychiatrist and he uses the analogy that there's very good data, despite parents pressuring their kids to learn how to read preschool, that if you learn to read in kindergarten or you learn to read in second grade, by fourth grade, your reading proficiency is the same. Right. So that's what we want to know is where are you in fourth grade? Now, if you're not reading well in fourth grade, now we have a problem and now we need to get an intervention. Um, And and that's what we're concerned about. So that's why I like the Denver Development Scale because it doesn't tell you sort of um, where, some of those boxes are very long. Some of them demonstrate a very broad range of development of a particular skill. Walking, I think, for example, is, you know, first first walking independently is a very broad range. Lots of kids do it early, but lots of them do it late. And yet they all end up walking by their 18 months. And if they're not, then they probably ought to see either the pediatric neurologist or the pediatric orthopedist because something's not right. Um, And how big that box is will be some of what we're looking at. How big should that box be? Right. Uh, and, and asking what the normal development of a resident is is something that I really would like to focus on because no one's really ever asked the question or at least not tried to collect data on it in a way that would help inform how we should be teaching, when we should be teaching, and what our assessment at the outside is going to look like so that we can say that they're competent. But um, but some of the problem is the teaching styles and I mean, there are sort of set curricula, but not necessarily so set that the teaching is the same from institution to institution. Right. So um, so you can take really broad groups of people. I mean, yeah, if you can get thousands of people the way they did in in, uh, Great Britain to do this. But aren't there still going to be pockets? Because let's face it, there are residencies that just don't teach that effectively. Right. There will. And and so that actually was a criticism in my grant 
when I sent it off for review, they came back and said, well, because there's no consistency in the education, you can't do this. And again, going back to my sad story about losing my lab, where I was trying to get a, a, a view of what the normal development looks like before we do hypothesis testing, my whole point is we don't know what that looks like right, right. now. We, we suspect it's probably true based on what we know about how education programs are built, but we have no data. And if we had the data, then we could say, wow, there's these four outliers out here. What's with them? And then you can go and ask them. And you might find that they're just a dysfunctional program and the ACGME should shut them down. But you mm -hmm. might find that they say, oh, well, of course they don't know how to do strabismus surgery yet. Our residents don't do that until third year. Their rotation in pediatrics is at the end of third year. And mm -hmm. then you go, oh, OK, well, that makes sense. Okay. And, and you don't know why they would be an outlier until you know they're an outlier. And, right. and I think you really need to have that initial data set to be able to do the hypothesis testing about why are there outliers. And then the next step too is, is people who are out in practice. I mean, you know, we all know maybe a general orthopedist who does a cervical fusion, maybe a handful of times a year, because that's what their town supports. And the hospital may have a concern about that, but they don't have anything to come back to and say, we're not sure if you should be doing these here or not. But if you were able to compare what that person's doing to someone who's very busy at a busier practice. Mm -hmm. um, it also gives the hospital tools that not all doctors are going to want to have. So right. there's just so many ways this could go. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. it, well, and I think that's, there's a lot of resistance. Um, there's a lot of resistance to this kind of work. And, and I think um, uh, it, it just has to get out there. And, and again, we don't know what the data is going to show. It might show that, that's that there's a really no problem that that surgeon's doing a fine job right and that there's no need for them to drive to the next town um but we we may not and i think ultimately it needs to be transparent and when we have good tools that are measuring what we think they're measuring and the problem is now we have no tools and the tools mm -hmm. we have we don't know if they're actually measuring what we think they're measuring um with you know some some new data that would indicate maybe they are like time um, once we have that data, then we have to be transparent about it and, and say, this is what we know, this is what we see, and then let patients decide. You know, if they find that the difference between the two surgeons is a 10% increase in, you know, post-op infection, they may decide, well, shoot, I can just take some antibiotics after that and end up fine anyway, and that saves me the three-hour drive to the university center to get my surgery. That's their choice to make. Um, mm -hmm. But but we don't even know what it looks like yet, and so we can't we can't give patients options because we don't even have the data to be able to help inform them. I have a colleague who trained in glaucoma, and in our residency, she was a resident with me in this program. And during our residency, we did a lot of corneal transplants um, as residents. Um, most people who do corneal transplants do a corneal fellowship after residency training, but she did a glaucoma fellowship after residency training, and she lived in a small town in Arkansas. And she had a patient come to her who needed a corneal transplant, not for visual rehabilitation, but for pain. Hmm. And she did not want to drive the three hours into the university center to have the corneal transplant. And she called up our, our faculty here and had a lot of conversations with them, but she felt she had enough surgical skill to be able to do a transplant for tectonic support, which is what this woman needed, even though she didn't feel that she had the skill level to give a good visual outcome, but the woman was basically blind in that eye for other reasons already anyway, and this was really to reduce the pain. And so she opted to go ahead and do it. And I think that was the right decision for that particular patient with her particular constraints. 
It wouldn't be the right decision for every patient. But she was able to give the patient options and tell her what the limitations were and what she could and couldn't do. And they made a decision together as a, as a treating team. And I think that's the way, you know, personalized medicine, people talk about it. This is exactly the kind of conversation we'd like to be able to have with our patients. Right. Well, Susan, we have gone way over time and we really appreciate <laughs> how that. generous you know, how generous you've been oh, for us. Sorry, I yeah. mean, this has really been a great discussion and this is one, uh, Susan, we're going to have to talk you into coming back because there's just so <laughs> much more we could talk about, but uh, for now, we're going to have to take a pause and just to close things out, just tell our listeners how they can learn more about you, your work, and learn more about this. And we'll, of course, get all the links and information up on the website yeah. so they can sure. check it out for or, themselves. Or learn how to be uh, lay ra- raiders. I mean, that Just sounds right, fascinating. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. They can, <laughs> so if they want to learn about the experiment that we've been talking about, they can go to experiment.com and um, they can look for me. Uh, Susan Culliken on that site. And, uh, you know, I'd love to hear back from anybody that goes there, uh, what they think about the lab notes and and give me some feedback because these things are all uh, evolving as we speak and and any new help would be appreciated. And um, if they're interested in being a lay raider, they can go to Amazon Turks at amazon.com and sign up to do some uh, lay rating experiments. Very, very cool. Well, uh, Susan, thank you again for uh, taking extra time to hang out with us today. Uh, Keith, it was a great conversation and uh, we, we both really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Susan. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com. <laughs>